few years ago, I was lucky enough to go to an amazing ceramic show full of the best of London's young artists. And at that show, I picked up my first ever original artwork. I've treasured these ceramics for years, and every day when I look at them, it takes me back to how I felt buying my first ever piece of art. Well, if you too want to get on that collecting ladder and have a piece of work that will fuel a lifetime of curiosity, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. And guess what? You're in luck because there's one just around the corner, and it's their 20th anniversary. Head down to Battersea Park from the 17th to the 20th of October, and you can check out over 100 galleries and thousands of original artworks, with prices starting from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com, and for half price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout, valid Thursday through Sunday. Huge thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. My guest today is the brilliant and phenomenally talented Harlem-born artist, Shabal Alasalf, who has become known to be one of the most highly regarded artists of her generation, having already exhibited widely in institutions, including a solo exhibition at the Hammer Museum in LA this year, and an upcoming show at the ICA in Boston in January 2020. Known for her expressive and dynamic works of the human figure, Shabalala's work combines paint, printmaking, collage, and sculpture. With her primary concern centering around the black female body within contemporary culture, Self explores subjects around race, gender, identity and sexuality through her images of women who portray exaggerated forms that express an individual and powerful identity. Always constructed in bold colours and full of vibrancy, Self's paintings play around with figuration in her characters dancing, posing and reclining across the canvases in an utter state of confidence. Graduating from the prestigious Bard College with a BA in 2012, Self went on to complete her MFA at Yale School of Art and has since participated in incredible residencies such as the American Academy in Rome and, in 2018, she completed the highly sought-after Studio Museum in Harlem residency, which includes a formidable group of alumni that includes Micheline Thomas, Enderjeka Akanili Crosby and Wangechi Mutu. Welcome Shabalala, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you for having me. So Shabalala, I mean, I've seen your work at numerous exhibitions, but um, for those maybe who haven't seen your work before, can you describe what one of your paintings is like? I describe the paintings as being assemblage mostly, and it's like they're a mixture of different kind of collected and assorted materials, various kinds of textiles, some which are fabric, some which are canvas, are painted and printed upon. Everything in the painting is kind of held together with stitch, 
and the various applique parts of the paintings which define articulate the figure are sewn onto a more consistent piece of canvas that is stretched and painted back into. So what really strikes me about your work, having seen exhibitions of yours here in London at Parasol Unit in 2017, and also most recently at Pilar Chorus with your exhibition Thigh High that's currently on right now, is the confidence and vibrancy that the figures in your work inherently portray. And what I find even more fascinating is how I've probably seen thousands of depictions of the female body, yet yours feel like this totally new and exciting language, especially the way that you're engaging with fabric and thread to work through new ideas, especially of the concept of painting. Why are you interested in exploring the black female body as an icon in your work? I'm interested in exploring the black female body primarily because um, it's the body I identify with the most. um, And also that it's a body by which like, I've navigated the world. So I feel as if I can speak most earnestly about that experience. That's why I've kind of dedicated my practice understanding how the black female body is understood in both a political and social context. And then more recently, expanding my explorations into understanding some of the interpersonal dynamics that happen around and between the black female body as well. And when do you think your fascination with the body began? I feel like figuration is something that is important to everyone just because everyone is navigating this world with the vessel of like a body. People often talk about the body as if it's something outside of oneself, but I can't imagine understanding life without considering your body. It's just something you live inside your body. It's the way in which you do anything. So for me, I don't know, it feels like kind of like a building block to any other kind of understanding when was your first understanding of how, especially the black female body, was depicted in maybe art history and popular culture? And when was it that you realized that you wanted to recreate this in kind of your visual language? I guess it's because when your body is othered in any kind of way, I guess maybe you're seen as being, you're living in a society in which your like identity is marginalized. So if you have like a gendered body or like a racialized body or a body that is disparaged because of its sexuality, you, at some point, you become aware of how society at large might view you. Once you become aware of that, I think that's when you start to notice the constant like cultural messaging that's projected upon you that is often disparaging. So um, I guess once I became aware of some of the negative messaging directed towards blackness and femaleness and where I grew up, which is America, I became, I guess I became hyper aware of like all those messaging, like either visual things in the media, just passive comments that were being made. And I I just felt like maybe because I didn't identify with that kind of messaging or programming that um, there must be other people that I felt similarly than I that I did. But I didn't see much representation of like an alternative narrative. So I decided to maybe just make my own. I felt empowered enough to do that. So what was your work initially about? My work initially wasn't really so much about that. I'm talking about my much, much earlier work, maybe when I was in college. Um, I was really more just processing images that already were existing out in the world. So more like holding up a mirror to different kind of images, um, you know, repainting or redrawing things I found in media. Um, but as my work progressed and I became more confident as a maker, I just I started to make my own, make things that I hadn't seen before that I had hoped to, instead of trying to like work through things that already existed that I never really truly identified with in the first place. 
But when I look at other people's work, especially people that I deal with a lot with identity politics, I feel like they've gone through, they went through kind of similar steps before they found a way of kind of communicating themselves that they they thought was more efficient. Were you looking at any other artists' kind of depictions of the female body much when you were growing up? Absolutely. I was looking a lot at work by Wangeshi Mutu and work by Mikaeline Thomas. Um, Those are artists I was really inspired by when I was younger. And even Kendi Wiley, even though he didn't deal much with the female form, I was thinking more about his um, depictions of, like, black people who would normally be considered, like, like ordinary, like black people you would see in Harlem or Brooklyn, people that I was very familiar with seeing in my everyday life. So those are artists I remember looking at so much when I was younger. And those artists are actually very inspiring for me, thinking about like, oh, I could do maybe something like that. It's so exciting, this kind of visual language that you have created, because like I said earlier, it's really like nothing I've seen before. And and you're kind of reinventing these um, new concepts of painting in a way. And you mentioned Harlem earlier. You were born there in 1990. And Harlem has such a kind of cultural history. It's such an art centre of the world. How has that place in particular inspired your work? Harlem has inspired my work in, I guess, like every way, mainly because it's informed my worldview. Like I can't imagine my work would be the same if I had grown up someplace different. I mean, Harlem has informed my personality, the way like I look at things, experiences I've had, absolutely so Harlem has obviously produced some of the most iconic and kind of well-respected artists living today. Are there any who have resonated with you a lot and maybe who you even come across when you've been there? There are lots of artists. I mean, there's so many artists from Harlem that have inspired me. Even I would say so many musicians as well and writers and so many different kinds of creatives from Harlem. I'm not entirely sure Faith Riggle is from Harlem, but I know that she went to City College, just right around the corner from where I grew up. And yeah, I ha- I did see her there recently at one of my favorite restaurants, which I was very excited to see her. Did you um go up to her and say hi? Yes, every single time that I've seen her, I've gone up to say hi to her. She's like one of my favorite <laughs> artists. <laughs> Why are you drawn to her work so much? Um, I think I actually had a children's book when I was younger um, called Tar Beach, which is it's her children's book. And I've just always seen her work since I was very young. It's always been a part of my life. So to get older, learn more about her practice and to see her works for fine art pieces in person and all of that, to see it outside the context in which I was first exposed to it through just like kind of like a bedtime story has really been a great experience for me. And then to meet her and to see her so many times has also been, yeah, it's been very interesting. She's always very sweet whenever I've met her, but I don't know if she remembers that we've met before. <laughs> <laughs> So what about your childhood in Harlem? What do you really remember from them? I really look back and think about like what it was like growing up in Harlem. I mostly to think about my siblings because I was the youngest. So I just constantly remember just looking, kind of watching and observing my older family members and being at home, their friends. I've always been fascinated with people. Maybe that's why I like doing figurative work. Being in a city is a lot about like looking at people, being around other people, especially if you're living in a neighborhood kind of like maybe how Harlem was in the 90s, kind of maybe getting a good read on people quickly. Um, and also I think that kind of dynamic might be mirrored if you're like living in a, lar- a house with lots of siblings, lots of family members. But I guess the best thing about growing up in Harlem was that I never necessarily felt 
othered living there because it was a black community. In many ways, it was not sheltered, but in that one way, in terms of how I viewed myself, um, I never felt like I was othered in any kind of way. And maybe that was a sheltering experience. I don't think a lot of people might not have that experience in the States, but, but I think I imagine a lot of people do as well because most black people live in black communities there. And were you kind of going to galleries in Harlem or the city? Did Were you kind of interested in art as an early age? Harlem has always been a very cultural place. Like there's always been lots of creatives that have lived there, tons of interesting people. My mother in particular, she loved to do different kinds of cultural things, like maybe go to the Schomburg or we would go to see, go to see like African dance troupes or things, different things of like that kind of nature. So I guess I was used to doing things like that. I also went to Harlem School of the Arts, which is down the hill from my house, and the Children's Art Carnival, which is down the block from my house. I mean, Harlem is a very vibrant neighborhood, so maybe I picked up some of that energy. And do you think you've um, kind of projected some of this vibrancy and maybe some of the characters? So, for example, one of the shows that I've seen of yours, uh, Bodega Run, which was at The Hammer earlier this year, but I saw it at Pilar Chorus back in 2017. Was that because Bodegas are kind of like this microcosm of culture for Harlem and embody the architecture, the environment. You know, they're a place of community in a way. They're your shop. You go there to consume. Do you think that was a kind of total reaction to growing up in Harlem? Yeah, that whole project, Bodega Run, was completely inspired by the like, New York City Bodega, which I was framing as like an institution of sorts within communities like Harlem and within Harlem itself. Um, and I was speaking about like all the different things that kind of make that space, I think, interesting and important from as a sociological perspective. But then outside of that, like, you know, it being just like an icon of a certain time and certain place. So I was first intrigued by the bodega because just aesthetically, I feel like they had like an aesthetic of accumulation, which I just identified with just given like how my studio is managed and how my work is made. The way in which like merchandise is stacked or organized in that store is like towards a more utilitarian purpose. So it's not really to create a certain kind of like aesthetic or shopping experience. It's more just to have as much stuff there so that people can have access to it. And I was just interested in the ways in which the store just visually was different from other kinds of stores. Um, stores, I guess, that would be considered to be more commercial or maybe there for more of it, people to have a shopping experience. And then I was thinking like, what is the purpose of the store being more utilitarian and opposed for people having an experience? Because stores are so symbolic in America. I mean, so much of people's worth is linked to their access to capital. So if you think the kinds of stores you have access to often are a reflection of like how you're valued by the you know society at large. So if you're in communities where there are these stores that are meant to have you be there for long periods of time or the stores that are there that are catering to you in some way opposed to stores which the whole purpose is for you to come in and then get out you imagine that some of the like the architecture of those spaces must be communicating some kind of message to you so i was fascinated with the bodega initially just because of like some of the the ways in which they were organized and how they looked but then I became interested in them for so many other reasons. Um, the stores are fascinating in regards to like, 
the dynamics between the ownership and the patronage, thinking about how many different kinds of Black identities are presented within the space in terms of thinking like a lot of the ownership is of Afro-Latino descent and most of the patronage of people who live in the community who are Black people who are literally from all throughout the diaspora. I'm thinking of like Black Americans, Black people from the Caribbean. So all those people are interacting with these stores and it's an opportunity to have a conversation about race and identity as it relates to blackness, but not in opposition to, or not even in any kind of relation to whiteness, which I thought was could be generative. It's something that I always had an aspiration to do within my practice, but couldn't find the narrative by which I could go about doing it. But the bodega seemed like a perfect opportunity to have that kind of conversation. Um, you could talk about black identity just within this vacuum of itself. So that's one of the reasons, too, I was also excited about the space. And then I like the push and pull of the space being both positive and negative. Like, I, I like that duality. I think there's so many beautiful and affirming aspects of a store like a bodega, this kind of, like, neighborhood institution. But at the same time, there are many, like, negative aspects about it, ways in which, you know, just as much as it replenishes community, that kind of deplenishes it as well. And how did you kind of translate this like bodega into not only the gallery space, but into actually your paintings? Well, I mean, I was aware of all these different thoughts while making the work, but I can't say in any kind of didactic way I was able to fully speak to all these different elements. But I hope that, you know, there are some formal cues in regards to like the installation once all the pieces come together that can maybe make the viewer aware of some of these um some of the things I was thinking about, I mean, the security mirror in, in one regard, I think, speaks to like a multiplicity of feelings that I have as a maker about the space. Um, but then I think that overall the installations are like relatively like joyous because like, I do have so many like beautiful nostalgic memories about the bodega. And I, like, the building blocks for those paintings are kind of these indexical drawings that kind of map out all the different kind of merchandise that's sold in the stores. I think those those drawings might be the biggest clue into some of the, I guess, some of the overarching ideas around, I guess, some of the concepts within the project. But um, once you're in the space, the paintings and the sculptures, they come together to create installation. Mm. So I guess I imagine like once you're in the space, that would create some kind of experience. I think what's interesting as well is like this kind of concept of a store as well and a store versus a gallery. When you were installing Bodega Run in, for example, um, The Hammer, which is a kind of public institution as opposed to like a gallery space, were you thinking of like the whole kind of consumer aspect of it? Well, that's the thing. It's like it's not even like a store versus a gallery. It's like a store. I mean, a gallery is a store. But Bodega is like the most kind of popular store you can imagine. It's also a store essentially for poor people, but a gallery is the exact opposite of that. So you imagine like you can go into a store and everything in that store, uh, the price is, is labeled on it, completely accessible to you. And, you know, the quality of your purchasing is also pretty obvious. But if you go into like a gallery, it's like this, it's a store as well, but it's just a store from a completely different group of people. When I first did the show, to do it inside of a gallery, I thought it was to like point at that. But then, of course, doing the show with an institution is different. It adds, it's like a different, it's a different conversation you're having it in that regard. It becomes more, like I said before, maybe even anthropological or sociological 
perspective on the space and how it's functioning. It's so interesting. And I think, you know, so much of your work is, especially seeing it in London is, I think it's really kind of captured people and you see it's different to what I think we've seen, especially as a kind of like painterly language. But also what I find really interesting about your work is how all these kind of different materials and they're all kind of different prints that, you know, where do you find these materials from? And has kind of textiles always been something that you've been interested in? Because I know that your mum was really interested when you were younger as well. Was, do, you th- do you think that inspired you to kind of actually look beyond using a kind of traditional medium and actually experimenting with this new medium? I've always kind of collected materials. So I got in the habit of collecting materials when I was focusing on printmaking. Copper plates, zinc plates, etching. When you're doing all that kind of stuff, you become really concerned with like texture. And my... My attempt to like make more complex, more ambitious textures, I was collect different kinds of objects that I knew could also be used to generate textured impressions onto paper. So I was collecting lots of lace or bits and pieces of things. For me, the easiest thing to collect is something that's already kind of readily available. At my family's home, there's so much fabric from fabric that my mother collected. And also some fabric that my sisters collected. My sisters used to love to like wrap their hair especially like in the 90s they would always like wrap their hair like really high up these like big style like after like wrap it it was like really popular they're like Erica Badu kind of like thing so I had like a bunch of they stopped doing that so I did all the, <laughs> all the scarves were still there at the house nice so all that kind of stuff as well um just old clothing um stuff I purchased fabric that is um and, you know from my family's collection fabric that I've collected fabric that I've come across and some of the stuff that's fabric is not it's not truly fabric it's just stuff that I've come in contact with that come in and out of my studio and some of it's old paintings um so it's kind of it's really like a mix of things and it's interesting that you're kind of combining all these different like found elements old paintings recycled materials into kind of constructing this female because in a way are you looking at the fact that because the way I see it is like are you kind of constructing and deconstructing the female body or are you kind of projecting all these different emotions and characters just onto this one figure because there are so many different objects from so many different places if that makes sense my own philosophy about thinking about a person is just that you're a sum of many parts I think that the way I'm working in terms of like building up the figure to speaks to that so I don't have to necessarily be there explaining the work for our viewer to kind of understand my intention in that regard, because I feel like the work maybe presents itself pretty earnestly as like what it is, because it's, it's a figure and it's made of all these different these different elements. And the, the question of like, is she being deconstructed? Is she reconstructed? I mean, that seems like such a, that seems like an existential question that, I mean, as you're aging and you're maybe becoming wiser, your body is most definitely you know, declining. So there's, you're always in the process of, you know, being constructed and deconstructed simultaneously. They, those are things that work in tandem with one another. I think what's also really interesting about your work is how all this like painterly language and how you, you know, actually almost substitute the painting or the paint or the pencil line with thread as well. I'm kind of intrigued about your process because do these kind of large paintings um, start out as drawings and then construct? How, what, what's the kind of process of your work with, with the paintings? Well, each one starts out a little bit differently. Some of them I'm starting with drawings and some of them I'm just building, building from the scrap material of my studio. So the ones that are kind of depicted slightly more naturalistically, those are usually ones that are starting with drawings. And then the ones that are maybe the the ones like where the faces are more more abstract, they're generally just they're just being built from the scrap. 
So I've read that you've cited activist artists such as Anna Mendieta and Faith Ringgold as inspirations. And you've said that you kind of use materials in an unconventional way to subvert the status quo and you don't have to use paint to make a painting. It aligns with your overall message, which is one of change. Can you kind of elaborate on that and how maybe how those artists have inspired you and what's the kind of purpose of using this thread? Well, I think that both of those artists use materials that they felt an affinity towards. You're thinking about Anna Mendiata and using even her her land art, and then Faith Ringel using like a host of different materials that some people would describe as being like craft oriented. And I just think of, by making paintings the way I make them, it allows for it to be like a more expansive understanding of what a painting can be. And I imagine that would kind of open up some kind of space for someone else in the future if they want to use a different kind of material as well. There's a lot of painting in the works. Um, so maybe that's also why people accept them as paintings. But also, too, I think so much about painting in general is just about confidence. So if you say something's a painting, like people aren't going to challenge you on that. I'd love to talk to you about like the kind of bodies and kind of who these characters are in your works, because I think what is really important, I think, just being a woman as well, is how kind of visible these um, figures are and how they kind of really kind of stand almost there in front of the canvas almost is that kind of visit can you talk a bit about that visibility and why you make them kind of just this single figure and I know obviously you use men as well but why you kind of project this single figure to be so visible to the viewer yeah so I guess and talking about like, the figures and their visibility I can't imagine what the alternative would be to that I guess I could make the figures less visible but then it would seem to like negate the whole purpose of making a painting of someone you know so I feel like if you're going to go through the effort of making a work about something or someone, it just seems counterproductive, kind of skirt around your original attention. How do you kind of want the viewer to feel when they're in front of your work? I don't want to like be prescriptive in any, any kind of way about the view. I, want to, I mean, I honestly would want people to have like their own experience with the paintings. Um, and I can't even say that I'm making the work for like individual people to have like individual experiences. That's not my overall objective. I mean, a lot of making work is cathartic. So, I mean, I also know from like someone who makes paintings, a lot of it is, you know, cathartic for you to process your own feelings, your own ideas. And these figures as well, because I've read that you've kind of tried to communicate with your characters a sense of complete freedom because they are just they're they're apparent they are not you know there's this like sort of nondescript background they're not pegged to anywhere I guess the bodega is kind of alluding to that but for the most part your characters are just kind of set in this womb-like canvas um is there a sense of freedom there I think there is a sense of freedom there and also maybe a sense of uh, disorientation as well but again I feel like that kind of mirrors um how I view maybe myself or others I mean I think that having the figures in this liminal space is just meant to mirror I think the liminal space that most people are are in, you know. And um it's the liminal space is also meant to speak more about to allude more to like a psychological or emotional space. And one of the reasons too why I I have made the works in the past where the figures are like in an environment is to kind of give more context to the other paintings and where the figures do exist in this liminal space. So, cause I, I do want, I did, I want to be more generous to like my viewership and give them some kind of context as to like where the figures are existing, like where they're coming from. But um, in general, I do prefer to show the figure in these kind of color fields because I think it allows for the, 
to be like more mysterious in regards to like where exactly their positionality is. And sometimes it's really hard to say because the work that I say is talking so much more about like a more of an introspective thought. And I guess when I imagine like you having an introspective thoughts, your or thoughts within your mind, it's some kind of dialogue with 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 you know to yourself. It's hard to situate that in a in like a named environment, mm. like often. What I find interesting though is then how you're kind of disrupting that space. So in the bodega, you had all types of kind of neon signs, and this was kind of apparent parallel with these use of mirrors, and actually cutting out the figure and actually kind of creating this almost extension of the canvas. But then that's reflecting the canvas. Why use a mirror in this space to kind of disrupt it? The idea with the mirrors and the cutouts um, and the silhouettes was to kind of give the sculpture, the, the affect of like, as if it was looking. So the first mirror cutout was this male figure, and he was meant to kind of play the voyeur within the context of the exhibition. So that the fact of him being reflective the the reflective nature was meant to to signal him looking it was meant to signal a gaze so that was the original idea with the first um, work that was mirrored and it has kind of evolved past that i mean the mirror and the bodega project has a different meaning it's it's actually alluding to like actual security mirrors and the idea of surveillance but i guess again it's speaking about a sort of gaze in regards to like surveillance um I'm usually trying to like, you know, talk about a gaze, different kinds of gazes, but they also formally are really beautiful installation devices because you're allowed to see the, the exhibition from different angles. And in some instances, you can see the entire installation from just one corner of the exhibition space, which is what happens with the security mirrors in the Bodega project. And your current exhibition, which is at Pilar Chorus at the moment, Thigh High, I felt like it was also a bit of a development just from, I don't know, if I think about that work, like Sapphire, for example, that was in Parasol Unit and, and actually how that figure has developed so much. I know looking at your works, it already feels so different. And then kind of going into these block colours, it, it felt much more in a way, confident. They're like these kind of block-coloured shadows. You have like, instead of detailed drawing around the walls, you have these kind of big blocks of kind of wall murals of the thigh. Can you tell us about kind of what you've been thinking about in the past year and how it kind of has led to this exhibition in particular? I think if you just focus on a certain kind of formalism, then the work would naturally develop. So I've just been more dedicated to making the formal, the ways in which the works are constructed formally more complex. So in that regard... I guess using my own materials as like referencing myself, I guess being more self, I guess the word is self-referential, but I'm doing that. The work has just developed like organically from that place. And the negative space around the figures are painted differently. Maybe in the past they were more washes onto like the raw canvas. This time around they've been, this has been primed the gesso canvas has been painted into so they've been made slightly differently. So in that way, I guess it's, it, the work's going to look different. Mm-hmm. And then the wall paintings, um, that's something that I've been thinking more about. This is a way to kind of more, more act, it's like activate the exhibition space in different ways. Because I feel like every time I go into one of your exhibitions, it's going to be this new world and this kind of insight into your mind. Or it's it, They really are kind of extensions of the paintings. And that's what I really love about them because you really kind of capture the element of what, the work's actually about and kind of talking about earlier where actually you're not giving us so much context but the works behind almost kind of substitute that do you like the fact that you kind of immerse people 
in this like particular subject when you have an exhibition? Is that your kind of your intention when you set out to kind of create an exhibition? I would hope that people would feel like the work is developing from show to show that they wouldn't feel like the work is redundant in any kind of way. Cause then I feel like I wouldn't, that would mean that I was maybe, you know, not really pushing myself really with my own studio. And downstairs at your exhibition, you have a incredible kind of like cut out sculptures of all these legs, which to me look at like, I don't know, something out of like a 70s disco. Um, mm. I think they're really fun and a great kind of expansion of your canvas. And then also at the end, you have um, animations of drawings. Can you speak a bit more about the drawings and why you like to display animation? Why is it important? I mean, honestly, like I don't even know if it is important. I just feel like it's something that I wanted to challenge myself within my own practice and then see like what are the boundaries for my work to see like how expansive the work can be all the different ways in which I can I guess explore my own ideas so experimenting farther with the sculptures and then with the animations all those different things allow me just to continue to experiment so a lot of times I think people like are expecting art to like like mean something and of course it means something but you can't always make sense of it a lot of the um, decisions really are more rooted in like an experimentation what are different possibilities for like what can come out of that mm. and kind of moving these different ideas around so maybe I'll have a silhouette that exists as a cutout in the painting that that same silhouette can become a a wall mural and that same silhouette can become and cut out in three in three dimensions as a sculpture I'll have a drawing that existed as a static drawing in one context, but when it's layered and set in sequence of other drawings, it becomes an animation. And it's just seeing how these all these different parts of the practice work together in different kinds of orientations. It's, it's, a lot of it is just ex experiments and formalism. The names I mentioned earlier uh, in the Studio Museum in Harlem, for those listening who aren't aware of it, is kind of like the most highly regarded uh, institute for kind of African-American descent artists. Wangeshi um, Muto, and Jekka, etc. They're really the kind of most era-defining, I guess, like the kind of generation above you artists. How does it feel to kind of be in that legacy? I just feel like infinitely thankful to be able to participate in the residency and I hope that, you know, because I was given the opportunity, I'll be able to inspire other people to pursue art. And I hope that I can, you know, add to that legacy now that I have completed the residency. And how do you think that your painterly language is going to kind of disrupt the history of art? I hope that I can contribute something new and unique. I don't have any intention really to like, you know, deconstruct or disrupt anything. I just want to be able to make space for myself. So we always end the Great Women Artists podcast asking our guest if they had their favourite female artist, uh, dead or alive, and if they were to meet them, who would it be and what would you say to them? I can't say it's just like one favourite. I have so many favourite artists, but I would like to meet Clementine Hunter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're very curious what her life was like. I just feel like it's such beautiful work and it also, it seems completely unpretentious as well. She's often described as like a folk artist, but for me, I guess I'm just really intrigued by a lot of the silhouettes of her work and the shapes of the characters. And I think that her dedication to depicting like black everyday life or black quotidian life, I'm mostly excited by. I guess I identify with that same desire that she had in her practice. I'm also just impressed with her as a person to be able to, 
maintain and even create an art practice at that time for like a black woman, that social context that she lived in. And where did you first see her work? I actually first saw her work when I was cleaning out of a neighbor's house um, who had a lot of her paintings um, in his basement. But I didn't realize it was her work at the time. And as I got older and I saw the work again in more of like art historical context, I realized that it was a work that I had saved years ago. Yeah, I was very impressed about, you know, her life story. I was intrigued by the paintings. They had this sort of kind of mystery to them. And I just liked her, just the work, the way the works were styled, like stylistic, stylistically and aesthetically. I was just drawn to the way that her works unfolded. Mm. And what would you say to her? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Shabalala, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the fourth episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Shabalala Self. It was so interesting to hear all about Shabalala's career so far. And if you're interested in seeing her work in the flesh, don't miss her exhibition at Pilar Corius in London, which is on right now. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these series so far, I'd be so grateful if you were to leave a little review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. If you're still looking for that perfect piece to make your house a home, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. This year's edition, their 20th anniversary, is taking place between the 17th and the 20th of October in Battersea Park, and prices start from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com, and for half-price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout. Valid Thursday through Sunday. Thanks for listening.